Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. We may be living in the information age, but somehow it seems to only be getting harder and harder to understand what's really going on. With political parties, special interest groups, and entire countries flooding the internet with misinformation, maybe it's time to up our game as media consumers so that we can do a better job of sorting out the nuggets of fact from the overwhelming torrents of fiction. I'm Keith Manconi, this is In Depth, and today, we're going to be speaking with Stanford University education professor Sam Weinberg, who argues that one way we could get a better handle on the truth would be to start thinking a little bit more like historians. His new book, Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone, examines how our loose relationship with the truth oftentimes begins with failings in the classroom. The book also offers practical advice on how we could all be savvier truth seekers in the digital age. Sam Weinberg joins us on the program now. Sam, thanks for being on In Depth. It's my pleasure. So your book centers on the teaching of history, but I think it's really concerned with how any of us, you know, whether we're in a history class or in our living room uh, watching the news, uh, can ever hope to make sense of uh, this world around us and try to figure out, you know, what's true and what's not true. So... Uh, that's really where I want to go in this conversation. As uh, a news provider such as KCBS, we are really concerned with how our listeners can do the most, make the most of the information that they have. Uh, but let's start with your starting point, the teaching of history. Uh, and so the question there that comes up for me is, why history? Why is it that thinking historically, as you phrase it in your book, really is the starting point for, uh, in your view, doing a better job of distinguishing fact from fiction? History, I think, more than any of the, the subjects that we teach in the school curriculum, is a place where there are contending voices, where people who sit on different positions on the political spectrum come together and argue about the meaning of the past. But traditionally, one of the things that we've agreed upon is how to establish a fact and what is the difference between a fact and an interpretation. So I can show you a variety of history books. Oh, we can take any historical story. Uh, for instance, let's talk about the civil rights movement and Rosa Parks' decision to remain in her seat. You can go to different different books and say, well, she, she remained in the first seat of the bus. And another book will say she was in the uh, 36th seat in the bus. And another would say that she's in the middle. Where she sat is an issue of fact. She sat in the middle of the bus in seat 12, and that can be established through documentary evidence in the National Archives, etc. But the question of why did she not yield her seat is a question that is open to interpretation. So history teaches the critical faculties of how we sort through contending voices to figure out what happened and to speculate about the meaning of what happened. And I think it gives us practice with the contending voices that we hear today in the news. 
And so then one of the warnings that your book is bringing up, though, is some of the challenges that uh, teaching history faces in this age where a lot of those facts are kind of up for grabs. Uh, Not necessarily up for grabs in the sense that we don't know what's true, but up for grabs in the sense that many people are letting the Internet do their historical thinking, their historical research uh, for them. So, uh, And your research has uh, taken a close look at some of the uh, pitfalls of that and some of the cases where that has not gone well. So tell us a little bit about, in your view, what are some of the dangers facing the the history curriculum in this Internet age? Well, Keith, when I was growing up, uh, I was taken to the public library and given a short, stubby pencil and taught how to go into the stacks. And there was a clear set of what was a legitimate source. And when I would go home in the evening, uh, we could go to three different television stations and a few radio stations. And there was basically a consensus that we were people who consumed the news and we consumed the stories that other people had vetted and approved for us. There were publishers, there were subject matter experts, there were librarians. But all bets are off today. The responsibility for figuring out what is true and what to believe is sits right now on the shoulders of each and every one of us. And never before in human civilization have we faced a situation where each one of us can be an author, each one of us can be a historian. We need no license to practice historiography. And in that sense, we are in a state of real confusion. And so in your research, what uh, give us some examples of some of the cases where uh, maybe history was distorted because of uh, these trends on uh, Internet usage. Perhaps one of the most infamous cases is a textbook in the state of Virginia uh, that was written for elementary school students, which claimed that thousands of African-Americans suited up in Confederate greys and fought on behalf of the Confederacy. And this is a claim that actually made its way into a textbook for the students of the state of Virginia. And when the Washington Post reporter called up the author and asked her, where did she find her information? She responded, and this is this is something that we should all be sitting down when I say it. She responded, I did my research on the Internet. And she went to a, a particular website of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and that's where she found the claim. So again, this this is a situation, and again, I, I say this not to indict this woman. Perhaps she might have taken needed to take a, a, a little bit more care. But really, I think it's emblematic of the modern condition where we, rather than going to the library and with the aid of a librarian going to an established source, we're sitting at our computer or even looking at our phone and Googling something. Now, Googling things, it's not necessarily a terrible way to uh, acquire information. Uh, I mean, I I spend a lot of my day looking for stories online. I I look at the Washington Post or I look at local papers and I I get my information. But it seems uh, what you're hinting at in your research is that the trouble comes when we have a difficult time uh, distinguishing between authoritative sources and sources of dubious origin and further Uh, troubling in your research is that it seems pretty clear that uh, many of us are are really struggling with that. We are all driving on the information highway and the great majority of us are doing so without a license. So we ubiquitously use Google, but in our research, uh, we did a survey of close to 7,000 American youth from middle school to college. What we found were just profound wellsprings of misinformation and ignorance about a tool that all of us use and often is the homepage of many of our of our browsers. 
And so to give you some examples, um, students will often equate the the order of a Google search with authenticity, with trustworthiness. The higher it is, the more trustworthy many students think a result is. And they're blithely unaware of things like search engine optimization, which games the results. I mean, for every Google search, there's a lot of money involved often if we're looking at a, a, an issue, for instance, of public policy where there's money involved, whether it's private prisons or a soda tax or charter schools. There are just as many groups that are out there trying to mask who they are and where their money comes from as there are legitimate sources. And so to think that the first thing that comes up on Google is the most trustworthy is a very perilous way to think about vetting information. Now, the devil's advocate in me wants to just say, so things may be difficult now. Maybe these are some new challenges. It's, it can be difficult to tell who's right, who's wrong, who's real, who's false. But we were up against many of the same challenges. I'm, I'm thinking back to maybe the 1980s or the 1990s when we had zines. And, you know, you could publish a zine and that could be from anybody. Or, you know, you, it could be the case that whatever authoritative source you had was leaving out a lot of important perspectives. So, I mean, haven't we always had some difficulty in, in acquiring true knowledge? Hasn't that always been a struggle? It's always been a struggle, but we have to face up to the fact that the situation and circumstances have changed profoundly. So, yes, we had zines, but think about it. If you wanted to publicize that zine, you would go to and find a Xerox copy machine and you would copy it and you would put it into envelopes and you would lick an envelope and you would figure out where to send it. And perhaps in several weeks you could get to maybe if you were just a single person, oh, a couple thousand people today with a few keystrokes and a message that has a way of going viral, you can be seen all over the world in a few minutes. There's really been nothing before the advent of the internet that allowed somebody sitting in the comfort of their living room to reach millions of people. Um, in the beginning of the internet, we thought this was a boon for democracy. This was a way of democratizing voices of many different people. And in some, to some extent, obviously, that's true. The internet has given voices to a lot of people who, before this point, didn't have any access to an audience. But we've also seen of late how foreign governments, how bad actors have misused the internet in places like uh, with, with, with the crisis of the Rohingya in Myanmar and in, 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 in places in a variety of African countries. And in this country with, uh, with bad actors, with foreign bots from, that are in troll farms in St. Petersburg, we're seeing how the very openness of the Internet poses a deep threat to democratic life. So one of the big focuses of uh, this show is to give people practical news you can use, stuff that you can actually, you know, use in the real world. And uh, your book has an awful lot of that. So let's linger on this notion of, you know, we need to do a better job of figuring out where our information is actually coming from when we refer to sources online, because uh, your book does have some practical, uh, some practical advice on how to do a better job of that. What would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that we're all making right now when we are using the Internet as our source of information? Well, there's a chapter in the book uh, where we discussed the research that we did that compared a group of Stanford undergraduates with a group of Ph.D. academics who use the Internet all the time with a group of, fac of professional fact-checkers who uh, are engaged in fact-checking at some of the nation's most prestigious 
prestigious uh, news outlets. And what we did was we created a set of tasks, online tasks, and we brought uh, our laptops into these people and we observed what they did when they were actually given a particular claim on the internet. So for example, let me give you, give you an example, a web page done by a group of pediatricians and that about adolescent bullying. And so the question is, how would you know if this is a reliable source? And one of the things that distinguished among the three groups, really, I'm going to, to, to put the, uh, the academics and the Stanford undergraduates in one category versus the professional fact checkers. There was a complete difference in how they approached these, these pages. It was so apparent that it jumped out at us right after the first few interviews that we did. So what, what the, both the undergraduates and the academics would do is they would take all of their powers of critical thinking and they would carefully study a web page that they were unfamiliar with. They would look at the about page. They would look and, and see if it's a .org. If it had a 501c3 nonprofit des designation, they would accord that a great deal of respect. And they would spend three or four minutes carefully scrutinizing the, what they were presented with. What professional fact checkers did was something completely different. When they came to a page that they were unfamiliar with, a source they were unfamiliar with, the way that they learned about it was paradoxically to leave it. They jumped off that page and went and they engaged in what we call lateral reading. They opened up multiple tabs across the horizontal axis of their screen and first learned about who was behind the claim before wasting a great deal of time trying to scrutinize and deeply read the claim itself. And that is a huge difference, particularly if you think about uh, in the state of California in the 2016 ballot, there were 17 different ballot initiatives that were presented, everything from uh, charter schools to, well, there was even, there was even an, uh, an amendment, a, a ballot initiative about uh, porn stars wearing condoms during live sex. And so if, if a, a responsible citizen spent 10 minutes on each one of those initiatives, that would be close to three hours. The question for a digital society is how to make those 10 minutes count. And the fact checkers had a way of, in a very fast and frugal way, getting to truth very quickly without getting confused. All right, so let's make this even more concrete. And I want to I wanna try this with maybe a very local news sort of example. So uh, a trend that I'm noticing, and I'm not going to name any names, uh, but a trend that I'm noticing around the Bay Area is you will see these very local news organizations pop up, and it's not clear who they're from, and all of a sudden they have very positive things to say about this or that developer. Uh, you know, they are reporting news, uh, in some cases, very straight, middle of the road, but when it comes to like a, a, a particular interest group, they really are plugging that story hard and, and trying to make uh, a, a particular uh, perspective on it seem more compelling. So when... Say I am person living in small town X, and I want to figure out whether or not this news source, the origins of which, you know, I can't quite suss out, is legitimate or not. What are the steps that you go through? I'm going to resist uh, uh, answering your question, Keith, and not refer to what I do, but refer to the kinds of things that I've watched professional fact checkers do that can be easily applied by anybody listening to this broadcast. So one of the things that fact checkers do, ironically, because it's something that some teachers tell their students that they should avoid, is when they come to a source that they've not heard of, 
they will often go as their first stop on a very quick journey of vetting that source is they will go to Wikipedia. But they will do several things with Wikipedia that most people don't do. The first is that they will just very quickly skim the article and immediately go down, take a beeline down to the bottom of the references and see if there's a more authoritative reference that they can that they recognize and they can rely on. Then they will often go to a tab on Wikipedia that many people have overlooked or don't even know it exists, and it's hiding there in plain sight. It's, on, it's the talk tab. So the next time that you open up Wikipedia, look right next to the, to the article tab. There's a tab that most people don't even never press on, and that's talk. And the talk tab is an ongoing conversation about the article itself with additional evidence that anchors particular facts that are in the article. So it's the savvy and quick use of Wikipedia. That's one thing. Another thing that we can do is, is to figure out who registered the domain. And so Again, this is this is laughably easy to do, but few people know how to do it or even know that it's available to them. Go to whois.net, or if you're using a Macintosh, whois is built right into the terminal of your Macintosh. And then put in the URL that you've found, and you will find who registered the domain, often the name of the person, where it's registered, and then you can Google that. And that, uh, that also provides a great deal of information and can establish whether the source is a bona fide source or is what's called astroturfing, uh, a source that looks like it's grassroots but actually turns out to be fake grass. Yeah, and that kind of touches on another warning that appears in your book, this notion that those that are dispensing if not fake information, at least, you know, information that is heavily weighted toward a particular perspective, uh, the folks that are doing that are getting more and more sophisticated as time passes. And so we can't necessarily trust our eyes when just looking at a website and saying, oh, this looks like a professionally done website. It must be credible. Can't necessarily trust that anymore. That's exactly right. I think that one of the biggest mistakes, particularly that people who fancy themselves as being critical thinkers and critical readers, that they fall into is that they think that they are smarter than the Internet. They think that they're... They think that they have the powers of discernment that can outwit some of the shrewdest uh, uh, web entrepreneurs out there. There's so much money involved right now on the Internet that to take that kind of hubris to the web and think that by your own powers of reading a single website, you can discern whether it is a credible or reliable source. That is just sheer lunacy. Fact checkers, they, they, they did the opposite of the, the, the old duck test of abduction of if, you th if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. Well, fact checkers had, had a motto because if they make a mistake, their job in many senses is on the line. They, they do a new twist on that, on that aphorism. If it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it has web-like feet, it might be a duck. I better check first. You're listening to KCBS's In-Depth, a show that brings you a deeper look at some of the major trends shaping the news we cover every day. Today, we're looking at how we can all do a better job of distinguishing fact from fiction, both in history books and in the news. For that conversation, we have on Stanford education professor Sam Weinberg, whose new book is Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone.
I suppose just as the internet matures and, and these trends continue, that is just going to make it all the more urgent that we take time out of our busy schedules and really acquire some of these uh, skills that you're talking about. I mean, is this is this uh, something of a responsibility that all of us uh, that hope to be educated uh, and informed members of the populace are, are going to kind of have to take upon ourselves at a certain point? I don't think there's an alternative. I think that that's that is the the exercise of concerned and informed citizenship. But what I would say is this, in many cases, is easier than it sounds. There's a few things to obey. Don't trust your eyes. Just because something looks legitimate, first check. Open up two or three tabs. Engage in what we just what I describe in the book as lateral reading. It's it's not rocket science. Um, another thing that we can learn how to do is if we're using Google, if we're using another browser, learn how to think like our browsers. Um, many people have said, "Oh boy, the 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 the." Uh, the findings that you present from your studies really don't shine a very positive link, a, a positive light on our youth. Well, my response to that is we can't blame young people for not being able to do something that we haven't taught them. There are very few classes where students are given explicit instruction, for instance, about how to choose canny and very kind of smart keywords so that they quickly get to the findings they want to find on the Internet. In many cases, some teachers don't know how to do that themselves. So we really are in a post-Gutenberg moment. The, the tools that we've created are, have got the best of us. We, we, are, we, we very quickly become tools of our tools. And we need to pause, and we need to do a reboot, and we need to fundamentally change some of the ways that we teach in school, particularly when we're using digital devices. And if we're not using them in school, then we're carrying them in our back pockets and we're using them at home. So this really requires a fundamental rethinking of how we go about the whole business of education. I wonder if this is uh, beyond the scope of what you're looking at, but one another area, uh, since we're since you know I'm especially concerned with the topic of local news, uh, another area, uh, another avenue of misinformation that I've seen uh, expand in recent years is uh, Nextdoor. Are you familiar with that uh, social media platform? I am. Yeah, and I've I've seen a number of false news stories spread on Nextdoor. I've seen a number of. Uh, furors and 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 controversies explode on Nextdoor in a way that I don't think uh, uh, would have happened otherwise. I, I mean, I, I suppose it's not unique to Nextdoor. That can happen on Twitter or any other social media platform. But what what are the ways that we should be more conscious of uh, how we consume information when it's purveyed through uh, a social media platform? One of the first things that I think that we can do, and in this sense, I am quoting my colleague uh, Michael Caulfield at. Uh, at Washington State University of Vancouver. His first piece of advice is be aware of our emotions, okay? So often we will forward something that fits with what we already believe or that serves our sense of furor, that speaks to our sense of being of, of being indignant when we hear something. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us when we see something that uh, fans our own flames to step back and look at our emotions and to say, wait a second. Yes, it seems to fit with what we already think, but before I possibly contribute to even more digital pollution and forward it to my Facebook feed or forward it to put it up on Twitter or send a note to Instagram, let me pause and go through 
just a little tiny bit of fact-checking. My message is not that each one of us needs to be a, prof a professional fact-checker. That, I think, is way beyond anybody's expectations. But we can, what we can do is to spend 90 seconds, a minute and a half, just doing a preliminary check with checking out with a little bit of lateral reading before we do that click and send to all of the people who are in our feed. Now, stepping back from the technology end of what you're talking about in your book for a moment and uh, looking a little bit more about the lessons that we can derive from uh, the history classroom, let's talk about what you mean when you use that term uh, thinking historically, because you're talking about, in a way, some of the tools that uh, folks in the his historical discipline have developed over time for getting a better handle on what's true and what's trustworthy and, and what's uh, not so trustworthy. And I think that this is uh, especially pertinent for news consumers in this age where so many news sources are mixing opinions with fact-gathering and mixing news-gathering sort of journalism with more just uh, analysis and uh, heavily tinged, biased opinion sort of journalism, both of which have uh, certainly have a place, but it's becoming harder and harder to tell the difference between the two. So uh, how can uh, historical thinking help us out with all that? The first thing it can do is to help us think about history as an enterprise where we engage in thinking. And so the title of my book, comes from actually something that a middle school student said to me when I was interviewing her in a history class. And I said, why are you learning this stuff? And she said, well, I don't really know why I have to memorize this stuff. It's already on my phone. <laughs> and so the title of my book is Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. And really, in, to some extent, from, from the perspective of that 13-year-old, she's got a point. A lot of the material that she is was asked to commit to memory and to put between her ears and is, is more quickly accessed through Google than it is recalled from her memory. What were uh, Wilson's 14 points or the bread riots of 1793 or the order of acts of the American Revolution or the date of the Battle of Lexington, April 19, 1775. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you'll still find in school where students are tested on the kind of minutia that often turns kids off to the vibrancy and the immediacy of the story of the past. Well, we do carry a device now that has more computing power than was available all of the, at, at all of the time of the Apollo launches. We carry that in our back pocket. And really, we're faced with a situation where, if that's the case, that we do have an external memory aid, how should we use the precious minutes that we have in school? And what history does is it teaches discernment. It teaches us, for instance, that when we see a quotation that seems outrageous to us or turns a negative light on a figure that to this point we've admired, it is incumbent upon to ask ourselves, what is the broader context for that person's statement? Do I understand? Is it taken out of context? Can I look at the at the, the broader sequence of events in which it was said. And this is something that has absolute relevancy to understanding the daily news in a time of, of, of uh, sound bites and quotes that are taken out of context that make people look bad. I think you see a direct connection between the kinds of 
the cultivation of discernment that we want to foster in history class with our ability to understand the kind of events that make up our daily news feed. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting because I have uh, conservative friends that get really angry when they watch something like MSNBC and they, they, they get you know annoyed by the opinions there, or I have... Uh, liberal friends that get annoyed when they see something on Fox and they you know, they, they, they see it as uh, chock full of lies or something like that. I watch either one of those and I can I feel like as somebody who works in the news industry, I can suss out which of the things are they saying that are real news factual claims and which are the things that are they're saying that are just opinions. And because of that, you know, I can see the value in both of them and, and take the facts that are there and, and, and make use of them. But if you don't have that grounding, if you don't kind of know what, what, how news people couch things and know what to look for in terms of what's an opinion and what's a fact, I can see how that would be uh, really challenging for a lot of folks out there. It is absolutely challenging. And it's one of the things that historical study cultivates, the ability to understand the difference between a fact and an interpretation. To return to an earlier example that I said at the at the beginning of the broadcast, where Rosa Parks sat is a fact, and we can establish it. Why she did not give our seat, or a an important historical question of why did the Montgomery bus boycott succeed? I mean, it is one of the marvelous stories of the success of the civil rights movement that lasted over a year and forced the hand of the Montgomery city lines. That is a question that is arguable, and there are multiple perspectives on why the Montgomery bus boycott succeeded. The the situation that we face as modern consumers of news at a time when many news outlets have collapsed the distinction between fact and interpretation makes this challenge even more thorny. It used to be in the days of an old print newspaper that opinion was published on the opinion page, on the op-ed double spread page, and news was on the front page. But we are in a time where that distinction has blurred. So the kinds of things that history can teach us are even more pertinent in today's world. Another really interesting concept that you bring up in your book is this notion of sounding critical versus thinking critically. And uh, the idea that we're kind of confusing those two activities in a lot of cases. Uh, Explain a little bit what you mean by that distinction between sounding critical versus thinking critically. I can explain it by giving you by just bringing you and our listeners into into the example that I used when I made that claim. We gave a group of high school students who were in AP classes a document, an 1892 document from Benjamin Harrison declaring Columbus Day as a national holiday. And when we gave it to the AP students, they criticized Columbus and they criticized uh, the idea of turning him into a hero. And they talked about all of the bad things that Columbus did. When we gave that second, that same document to a group of PhD historian students, uh, PhD students in in history, excuse me, they didn't talk about Columbus at all. In fact, they raised questions rather than, 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 than hitting the judge's gavel and declaring Columbus to be a rogue. They saw that document as a document, as a product of 1892. What was going on in 1892, for instance, that wasn't going on in 1792, that a political figure found it expedient at that point to create a national holiday for Christopher Columbus when there had not been a holiday? And so there were questions about 
wait a second, was did it have to do with Columbus being Catholic? Did it have to do with the the great wave of immigration that was coming in at that time? Many of millions of immigrants coming from Europe, from Italy, from Ireland, a little bit Ireland several decades before, that were creating a constituency of Catholic voters in urban centers. And was it possible that this particular decision was one that was created in order to woo voters? And so What you had historians doing was engaging in a process that I call the specification of their ignorance. They encountered a historical document and used it as an opportunity to formulate a set of questions that would lead to new learning. A group of high school students, on the other hand, simply pressed a button that sounded critical, their criticism of Columbus. Obviously, if this were about Columbus, Columbus is certainly worthy of criticism. But this document from 1892 really raised a different set of questions. Students looked at this document and judged it. Historians looked at this document and used it as an opportunity to position themselves for new learning. And that's the difference between sounding critical and engaging in critical thinking. And it can be really hard in uh, when politics are as heated as they are, and you, you, you sometimes do feel a real pressure to be critical of this or that thing in order to stay aligned with you know, whatever is politically correct or politically expedient at the moment. Uh, and uh, I, I notice oftentimes people are really getting critical at the expense of really taking a second and thinking, well, does that, does that argument actually really make sense? Is, is that criticism, does it really bear out? I think that you're absolutely right. I certainly know that it is a tendency that I have to try to curb in myself. But I think that this tendency of quickly being critical and rushing to judgment is something of a national malaise at this point and leading to further further polarization. And to go back to the history social studies classroom, both at the high school level, at the middle school level, as well at the, as the university level. What we need to cultivate in a society that is so polyglot and so multi-ethnic is not a recession into each one of our own identity niches. It is the ability to listen to people who think differently from how we think, and rather than immediately judging them, to ask them questions that further illuminate what they think so that we better understand it, where we can look for points of contact and consensus rather than retreating into our own little echo chamber. Well, I want to end on this point that you made. Uh, you, You also argue that even in the face of all of this false news and even in the face of many of these online shady organizations that are trying to purvey inaccuracies and and send us down the wrong path, even in the face of all that, you still say that rather than regulating this problem out of existence, rather than getting the government involved in somehow figuring out which organizations are allowed to be online, which web pages should be up, which should be down, you're saying that's not the answer. The answer is in education. So How is it that we can educate ourselves out of some of these challenges when it really does seem like we're up against a lot? You know, a whole country interfering with our election. That's not nothing. It certainly is not nothing. It is a threat to democracy. And I think that we have to take it seriously. But I think we also need to, uh, in the words of my own children, we need to chill out a little bit. That we, we, we need to recognize that we are in the wake of a profound revolution in how we understand the world. 
Uh, we no longer carry a stack of maps in our glove compartment in order to, na to navigate a strange city. We, we often do our Christmas shopping online. We look for a plumber. We look for an electrician, not necessarily by asking a friend, but going on a Yelp review. The, the way that we understand the world is now through a screen, and the genie is out of the bottle. And it's going to take a while. The, the idea that there is a quick fix, that there is a, a single course in media literacy that's going to bring nirvana is, is really, a, it's, it's a red herring. It diverts us from the kind of work and the kind of resources that we're going to need to accommodate ourselves to this different reality. I mean, think about what happened in the advent of the of of of, move, of Gutenberg's movable type. It wasn't that there was a golden golden age of literacy. We with movable type and the extension of of book publishing to the masses, we had to create a system of education that moved literacy from a small scribal elite to everyone in society, and that did not happen overnight. So what's going to happen? It's going to take us about a decade, I would imagine, before the educational system tools up to not protect students from the Internet. Many, many schools are creating Internet filters or eliminating the Internet, internet altogether from schools, which essentially leaves students exposed to it at home and in their back pocket. What we need to do is to retool, rethink. It means profoundly new ways of teacher professional development. It need, means new kinds of curriculum initiatives. It means uh, ex not only thinking of education as public education, but the education of the public. Our public libraries need to to step into this void because there are those are the places where our parents and our grandparents are coming and accessing the internet. And we need to use these places as venues for educating the public. So this really is going to take a society-wide effort, and it's going to take a few years. And so we shouldn't beat ourselves over the head, but we should become acutely aware of the challenge that faces us and to gear up and devote the resources for meeting that challenge. All right. Well, that is a lucid look at some of the uh, challenges ahead of us, but also something uh, of an optimistic take on what we can do to perhaps overcome some of those challenges. Uh, we've been speaking here today to Stanford education professor Sam Weinberg. His new book is Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. Sam, thanks a lot for joining us. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to KCBS's In-Depth. If you want to hear past episodes of the program, Head on over to kcbsradio.com or on over to iTunes. There you'll find dozens more in-depth conversations reflecting on the major news stories making waves in the Bay Area and beyond. Some of those are going to have additional bonus content that you can only find online as well. That is going to do it for the program today, though. Be sure to tune in again next week for the next edition of In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and I'll see you then. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.